Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name's Dr. Andrew Trasida from Somerset Integrated Care System, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset NHS uh, Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And we're joined by another colleague and friend from uh, a previous and previous guest, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Coop. Please, Sarah, introduce yourself. Thanks very much, Andrew and Peter. Great to be back again. So, yeah, I'm Sarah Coop. I'm a GP by background, but working at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists now as um, in their education, director of education. Well, that's great. Congratulations and welcome back. And today we're going to talk about human needs as part of our emotional well-being. Uh, look at life. Human needs. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I, well, I suppose it starts with um, what it says on the tin. So human needs, needs that all of us as human beings have. And I think I don't know about you, but I think often we're not aware of our needs. And so one of the reasons I thought this might be an interesting discussion or topic for discussion was to help raise awareness of what are our needs, our common needs as human beings, and how well do we address those? And at medical school, we were taught Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow's pyramid, Maslow's triangle, whatever you like to call it, which uh, which ranks these. Can, is that still relevant and worthwhile? And if so, can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I think people have different opinions about how relevant it is now. I mean, it was something that I think Maslow um, developed and published back in the 1940s and revised in the 70s. I think there's still relevance in it that we can learn from, reflect on and discuss. So I guess if the people, if if you if you're listening to the podcast, you haven't heard of it or it's a while since you've um, thought about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, maybe search for it, pull up a, an image, you'll see a triangle with five different levels on it. And I think, yeah, I think it'd be helpful to look at it and see how relevant it is for us now, maybe through discussion. Excellent. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you can look at a browser, and that starts like a pyramid or a triangle pointing upwards. What's what's at the bottom of the, the what are the foundations? What are the, the things that are crucial for anything else to happen, Sarah? Yeah, I think it's a really good point, Andrew, because the way that Maslow pre- presented this was to think that there's five levels of needs, and he revised it and added an, an extra level, but we'll perhaps talk about five today. And his um, proposal really was um, that we needed to meet the needs at the bottom of the of the pyramid first before we could meet the needs, the human needs higher up. So the bottom level of human needs that he identified were those physiological needs. So basic care needs, needs for sleep, food, water, shelter, those things that um, we would take as sort of basic care. And it seems so obvious, doesn't it? And that's what is at the bottom. But I think sometimes, particularly in the medical profession, and maybe other health healthcare professionals can identify with this, sometimes we can easily neglect those needs on a day-to-day basis. Certainly, I have colleagues who say that they're they're very, very busy and they can't take a break for anything. And they find that they, they don't function so well with an empty stomach and a full bladder. So I, I think that demonstrates what you're saying, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I've heard of doctors and probably other health professionals saying they've had that decision to make. Do I have another drink? And then that means I need a toilet break. Or do I actually go without a drink because I haven't got time to go to the loo? And when it really comes down to those basic needs, it's really quite significant, isn't it? That we maybe even have that, that discussion about what can we, ha- you know, what do we need to meet? What's the choice really when it comes down to those basic, basic needs? So I think one thing I'd often encourage people to, to think about 
if you know when we talk about human needs is overall what would you say your well-being score is if you're going to rate it out of 10 10 being you know most the, the greatest of well-being that you think you could have at the moment and zero being really struggling with your well-being at the moment and then as we go through each of these sort of levels on the on Maslow's hierarchy perhaps identify how well are you meeting the needs at the moment for each of those areas because you can see how perhaps focusing on that particular area might then increase your overall well-being score so that's just one idea i think of, of using this as a tool to perhaps improve our well-being so this is really about self-awareness isn't it which a lot of us struggle with do you, do you want to take us up to the second tier yeah, I think so. And I think there's often strategies that we can employ in each area. So perhaps just before we move up to the second tier, just thinking about physiological, just recognising that, yeah, quite often we do feel pushed to make a choice about how we're going to meet those basic needs. But remembering that Maslow's proposition was you can only move up to the next level if you're meeting the needs on the lower level. So I think that the message from the from the physiological one is, and, and we've often quoted this, haven't we? You know, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first. You can't pour from an empty cup, those kind of sayings. And I suppose it really comes down to that. We have to meet those basic needs for ourselves in order to look after um, ourselves properly, but also really to then be able to care, care for others. So that's the first, um, the, the bottom level. So we would need to think, yeah, what's your current score in that level? How well are you addressing those needs? The next level up is safety. And there's two aspects, I think, to this, Phys- physical safety and then sort of psychological safety. Um, there's things like needs for security, needs for I suppose, health. But I, I'm particularly interested in, I mean, obviously, physical safety is really, really important. Let me make sure we, our needs are met in that area. But I think psychological safety is something that's quite interesting to look at. Um, I, I was going to throw a question back. I don't know what you think about that, Peter. Yes. And I, that's an interesting concept and not something I'd really consider. So tell us what you mean by psychological safety and what we can do to improve it. Yeah, it's something that's been talked about a lot, I think, in the last few years. Um, Amy Edmondson has done a lot of work in this. And if people have, have come across or haven't come across her work, I'd really recommend looking at, looking at that, particularly from a leadership perspective. So I think the psychological safety, um, a quote that I found somewhere was, if I make a mistake or if I ask for information or help, others won't punish me or they won't think less of me. So there's a sense that it's safe to not know it all. It's safe to get it wrong. And it's safe to ask for support. And I think in an organisation, particularly in healthcare, there's, there's research that's been shown that if psychological safety is there, people feel obviously much safer asking for that support and help, which of course then has a, a really positive impact, hopefully on um, quality of care and, and patient outcomes and all those other things. Whereas if you will feel unsafe asking for support or help when they're looking after patients, we, we know the sorts of um, impact that that could have negatively. That's really interesting because um, we've, we've talked on previous podcasts about the autonomic nervous system and sympathetic drive, which is the adrenaline drive. And when we feel safe, that gives us energy to be curious and to explore. But when we feel unsafe, when we move into fear for whatever reason, then actually that becomes very threatening. We we move into fight and flight mode. And of course, our performance changes dramatically Mm -hmm. and can tail off. Yes, it's a good point, isn't it? So I think that curiosity, you know, if we think, how do we increase our psychological safety or how do we maximise that if we're in a leadership position? I think having that um, curiosity standpoint is really important, but also having that humility to model um, admitting when we've made a mistake and what we've learned from it is, is again, another really important principle. And you've mentioned how 
the situation around us is important for that, but also our own perception can change it, can't it? So some people, because of previous experience or trauma, will feel unsafe in situations where others wouldn't. And is that something that we can change if we're constantly feeling unsafe? Yeah, I think that's a whole other podcast in itself as well, isn't it? Really exploring that. I mean, yeah, in terms of what's going on with our thinking behind um, those situations, which might there might be a trigger in them that makes us feel unsafe. And actually what's, by uncovering that and really thinking, what's the trigger that we're identifying? What are we telling ourselves is making us feel unsafe? And how do we work on that and potentially change that? Um, I think in the previous podcast where I talked about restorative coaching, we, co- we covered some of those things, didn't we? We were looking at how our thoughts can affect our feelings and our behaviour. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that that would be something really interesting to dive into in a bit more detail another time, perhaps. You've just uh, had, invited yourself back for a third time, <laughs> which would be fantastic. And, and just to help us all feel safe and calm and all our listeners, as long as you're not driving or using heavy machinery, can I invite us all to put our feet flat on the floor, our spines to be comfortable, and going back to level one of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, using our abdom- abdominal muscles, our, our tummy muscles, our diaphragms, just take three slow, regular, rhythmic, calming breaths, just to make us have a strong foundation before we look above psychological safety, above level one, above level two to level three. Yeah, so level three is love and belonging. And it's really looking at needs for connection, needs for friendship, need for mutual support, need that sense of of being part of something and an emotional um, connection. That's how I sort of see level three. I think in the pandemic particularly, it's been really hard for a lot of people to really build build that and address those needs. And particularly even when you're working closely with people, but you're masked up or gowned up, um, you know, it's very hard sometimes to, to read facial expressions that might convey that sense of, of connection and positivity. So I think you can see then how having a psychologically safe environment um, hopefully then can feed into that sense of increased connection and increased support. That's one of the, suppose, the, the desired outputs from that. Um, Andrew, what else would you say sort of may, might feed into the needs in level three? What do you, how do you see that? Um, connection is absolutely crucial and belonging. And um, culture is set from, from the top. It's contributed to uh, by every member of society, by every member of us who are in a team or an organisation. But um, having a compassionate leadership, having kindness as one of our core values just slows things down um, uh, away from tension and competition and allows us, because we are social human beings, we are creatures who relate to others as well as perform tasks and have achievements, allows us to just function better. Does that sound? Yeah, I think that's, I would resonate completely with that. I think the thing I was that came to mind as you were saying that is around kindness, definitely. And then I was thinking about civility saves lives. So the um, the work that Dr. Chris Turner has done, uh, and again, if you haven't heard his TED talk, I'd really recommend listening to that. I think what's been recognised is kindness is free, but often when we're under so much stress, it's often one of the things that's in civility, you know, kindness is part of civility, isn't it? One of those things that can really just slip easily in our 
um, nonverbal expression, nonverbal leakage, as I sometimes call it. And I think so. Yeah, really intentionally setting um, setting out, I suppose, our, our behaviour to to convey that kindness that can really meet other people's needs of love and belonging, as well as our own. Because often when we express that kindness to other people, we receive it, don't we? Absolutely. And, and when we talk about this, we're tending to think of relationships and love between people. But do you think it's equally valid to think of it between, say, pets or our relationship with nature? Uh, it, to me, it, it can be broader than just between people. Yeah, it's, I think that's the thing. We can extend it as far as we need. And, and a question I often would ask um, myself, as well as people around me that I'm perhaps working with on a coaching and a coaching sort of situation might be, you know, what brings you joy? What is it in life that brings you joy? Everyone has different things. It might be their pets. It might be um, nature. It might be relationships. It might be particular sort of um, hobbies and interests that they spend time doing. And I suppose a lot of those things will bring people that sense of love, maybe belonging because it's something they perhaps do in a community um, or it might be something else that gives them that sense of connection, whether it is with others or whether it's with nature or um, perhaps a deeper connection with themselves um, at a deeper level. So I think it means different things to different people. yeah, it's a good question. So physiological needs, psychological safety, belonging. Yeah. Where next in the... In yeah, the... so the next level up, so assuming that the needs, that we've met our needs for these lower three levels, then we can address and meet our needs for the next level, which is esteem. So esteem, I suppose, is around that that need for respect, need for value, need for for worth. Those, so that sense of, of yeah, feeling, I suppose, yeah, important in, in a way that, that's, I suppose, how to put it, that's kind of, that's, that's valued, that's, that brings that, that sense of, of, um, of worth, yeah, worthiness, I think. And some people find it hard to meet that need for various reasons. I don't know what you think, Peter. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's something I see a lot as a, a GP, people who have low self-esteem, and it, it doesn't usually relate to how they are at that time or or what objectively uh, they might feel about themselves. It often seems to hark back to messages we had a, as as children. And you've mentioned a book, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, I'm OK, You're OK, that talks about this because I see people who were told as children, you're not worth anything. And they really struggle as adults to achieve self-worth. Is, is that something you see? Yeah, certainly. I think, again, it's interesting to look at Maslow's hierarchy and think, you know, what part of that might be the lower level needs not being met. So for some people where they're experiencing self low self-esteem, it might be that perhaps they don't feel psychologically safe and that feeds into it. Or perhaps they are not meeting their basic needs. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly know if I haven't slept well and I haven't eaten well, I can probably think negatively my negative self-talk is, is going to be sort of more prominent. So I think, you know, what do we mean by low self-esteem? And I suppose often it shows in our behaviour in terms of um, perhaps comments that are made or I'm no good at that or people think I'm rubbish or, you know, it's just I'm, I'm terrible. I'm always making mistakes. It could be the sort of self um, putting down kind of comments or it could come out in a sort of an avoidance way. So people avoid putting themselves in situations where they fear they might be exposed in terms of their weaknesses might be more apparent. Um, yeah, Andrew, what, how else have you seen it in your work as a GP? Well, um, uh, um, certainly, as Peter says, uh, a lot of people have negative self-talk. And I suppose there are two aspects to this. One is that feeling of where is our inner greatness? Because actually, we're all designed to have inner greatness. We're not designed to feel miserable or to to have negative self-talk that says you're not good enough. 
Um, and we can look outside ourselves from the people we connect with, perhaps going down back down a level, but staying on the self-esteem level, the two are mixing here. Um, and if we have supportive others around us, then we will feel supported and we can grow. And if we have unsupported others, and, and I say around us, this could be on social media. Uh, and I suppose I'd be interested to know um, what your thoughts are on how social media can both can either uplift us and make us feel better or actually might have the opposite effect sometimes? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. So the first thing that comes to mind, I think, around social media is probably how we can be sucked into a bit of a rabbit hole sometimes in of negativity by reading comments that you know, can drag us down because we know that what we feed our mind with you know, affects how we feel. It's a bit like the thoughts, isn't it? So if we feed our thoughts with negativity. So I suppose it depends what we're engaging with on social media in terms of the impact and the and the effect of that but I certainly have seen that um, and I've experienced that myself that that kind of getting sucked into negativity on social media just even reading if you're not writing comments yourself it can it can certainly affect um, comparison and um, making those sort of judgments about oneself compared to somebody else who appears to be um, superior in some way so I think yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about Peter what what were you wondering Yes, I was. Um, I was going to put my my mental health hat on just for a moment and and say if people are experiencing low self esteem uh, on a, on a long term basis and getting anxious or, or depressed because of it, um, although there are lots of things we can do to help ourselves, there are also uh, talking therapies, cognitive behavioural therapy (CBT) which people can refer themselves for, which challenge these sort of negative thoughts and can help turn people's thought processes around. I don't know your experience of, of that with patients and whether you find that useful. I think that's really powerful. I think that's one of the first things, isn't it, is, is identifying those thoughts. So often other people will have noticed it perhaps about ourselves more, more quickly than we can. Um, but I guess CBT can really help to bring those into the light. So pulling out those negative thoughts. So somebody else sort of challenging them, saying, you know, what are you telling yourself in that moment? And being able to capture that thought and then recognise, you know, How's that affecting you? How's that working? How's that turning out by thinking down that thought, that thought path? And actually, what's a more powerful, helpful, healthy thought? And I think a big thing from just looking at Maslow's hierarchy is recognizing those sort of strategies that we employ often habitually without even realizing sometimes and putting them out into the light and then recognizing we have a choice. We can carry on doing what we've always done, but then we'll always get what we've always got. I think as Henry Ford said, or we can actually think, well, what would I like to happen instead? Which needs do I want to address so that my overall well-being is improved? And perhaps start with that lowest level where you know that perhaps we're not, you're not addressing those things. And I think the self-esteem CBT side of it is, is um, certainly spending some time with a talking therapist to identify those negative thought patterns that can be you can be freed from by thinking of more healthy ways of, of seeing yourself and putting that into practice. And time in nature, and uh, and yes. achieving anything that you you set out to do. So that's taken us up to level four. Is there another yeah. level that we could explore? There's, there is. So the other level is called self actualization. So that's not a term that most of us probably use on a frequent basis. But I think how I understand that is around being the best version of yourself. Um, that need to be authentic that need for purpose and the need to make a difference. And for many of us in a healthcare professional role, that's often why we do it. We want to make a positive difference. We want to feel that you know, we, we are fulfilling the purpose. We are able to be ourselves there. 
And so I think you know, it's, it's helpful to sort of recognize that often that's what drives us to, to do the work that we do, often drives us to do a lot of things that we do in our lives. And we have a need for that. We have a need to feel that we are, um, yeah, making a difference and, and being our true selves. Can I be controversial, Sarah? Um, mm-hmm. We were all taught this. I think I think it's a useful thing to think about. But I think it's also sometimes completely wrong. And, and I can think of people who will put their, their life in danger, who will suffer hardship and uh, and hunger in order to do things that they feel are worthwhile. People who climb mountains or, or, or go on marathons or whatever. And people who put self-actualization above everything else, people like Freddie Mercury, who sang his song when he was he was about to die, and David Bowie, who produced his last album as he was dying. So I actually think that the, the top of the triangle can sometimes be more powerful. And our podcast is about living well when we don't have good health very often. So I, I would hate to think that if people don't have those basic needs because they've got poor health, they can't move on to self-actualization. But that's controversial. What what do you think? No, it's, yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's a really that's really made me think. Um, I, I yeah, and I, I agree that I, we can't sort of say this one size fits all. And that's in some ways why we chose this, wasn't it, to sort of look at it and reflect on it. And I suppose it's, there's different situations out like there where you could apply this. But you're right. There's examples where people have achieved great things, but yet some of their lower needs. They're not meeting some of those low needs or chosen not to. Um, and some of the examples you've given really, are really inspiring, aren't they? Examples or really powerful examples of, of how people can achieve those, those amazing things, yet forfeiting some of the basic needs. I suppose this is sort of a simple framework in some ways, although there's a lot to it, isn't there? But I suppose it's everyone taking from this, you know, what, what needs do you have in order to be the best version of yourself and what does that look like nobody can tell you that can they no one can say to you this is who you need to be and therefore this is the recipe for that so I suppose it's just inviting people to stop and think and think you know who who is your authentic self what's your purpose in life which is a very deep question isn't it and what needs to happen what needs to be in place for you to to um bring that into fruition Interesting. And uh, I like your challenge, Peter, but uh, thinking about the validity of Maslow's five hierarchy of needs, they are preconditions for long-term health. And yes, we can we can put them aside perhaps in the short term, but long, long-term perhaps they're important. And could I just share something that Eleanor James, who is a consultant oncologist, wrote recently, and it's, this, this may be relevant. So being a doctor, does not exclude you from being a human being. And she's got six statements now. Eat, drink, we, and take time off. Being a doctor does not exclude you from being a human being. Number two, you won't be perfect for 100% of the time. And so many of us feel we're we're driven by perfectionism. Being a doctor does not exclude you from being a human being. Sometimes your colleagues may be nasty. Being a doctor does not exclude you from being a human being. You will make mistakes being a doctor does not exclude you from being a human being. You can't prioritise everything as the most important because some things just won't get done or won't get done very well. Being a doctor does not exclude you from being a human being. You won't know how to do some things or will be doing things that you've never done before. This is scary, but it's not that hard. You just need to do it. But remember, being a doctor does not exclude you from being a human being. 
think that relates to several of the uh, several of Maslow's needs there that we've articulated. Yeah, I think it's that reminder, isn't it, that yeah, we are human beings, and therefore we need to look and meet our needs in whatever way is right for us. Um, I think having challenged uh, Maslow, I, I think it's still a value um, because of what you said earlier. It gives us that self-awareness. So if we're aware of those different needs at different levels, uh, then we can do what we can to address them. But then some of them may not be addressable, may not be overcomable, like poor health. And then we try and do the best we can. But particularly the low self-esteem, I think a lot of people aren't even aware that it's an issue that can be addressed. They just think that's how they are. So that's really to me, true. that's the, the main value of it. Yeah, I think it's really true. I think the self-awareness, I often think self-awareness is so helpful, isn't it? Because it makes you then re- realise you have a choice. And that's the important That's the important point, that we have a choice. Whereas often, if if we just carry on in our automatic behaviour, um, we, we're not exercising that choice. Um, what do you think, Andrew? Well, I was just going to pick up, I, I agree entirely on that, and I was going to pick up the self-awareness. On It is said that on the temple, the portico of the temple, the Greek temple at Delphi, are written two things, and I I don't think I can pronounce Greek very well, but it's. I think it's one's made in Agan and the other's Nerthisiathon, and the, the second one means know thyself. So the ancient Greeks were saying, be self-aware, and the other, the other um, two-word phrase means nothing in excess keep everything in balance so mm, watch lovely. words for health yeah and i think using something like the Maslow's hierarchy to to raise that self-awareness when i was sort of thinking about this what it brought to mind was well what habits do i have in place that support each of those levels and which habits are currently serving me well and perhaps which habits are not and i read something that said habits take um 66 days on average to really become embedded so the life we're often living now is probably a product of the last 66 days worth of habits so i guess an invitation to people listening is just yeah what habits what's showing up in your life right now what are the habits that underpin that and for each of those levels perhaps you know are there any new habits that you want to start anything you feel you want to stop doing and yeah, is that that opportunity, isn't it, to to sort of stop and think and and, and exercise that choice? Sarah, thank you very much indeed. That's been oh. an absolutely fascinating exploration of of human needs. Peter, would you like a last word, and then Sarah, one last word? I, I'm really my last word is we look forward to seeing you in a future podcast to uh, explore some of the things we discussed about. Excellent. Thank you. I'd love to come back and talk about, yeah, low self-esteem or anything else that's come out of of this. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group. 